I'm excited to be here today. I drove down the street here, and I thought, this can't be the place. <laughs> Didn't look like this the last time I was here. Uh, in fact, that was a totally empty field out there. And then I talked to the, set, to the staff a couple of weeks ago, and they said, well, the, the foundations are in. So I was expecting some sign of construction. But if you keep it this way, we might worship there next week. I mean, it's, it's fabulous to see what God has done. And I'm excited about being here. I have worshipped with you on several occasions. You may not have seen me. Mary and I kind of snuck in with our daughter, Laura. And uh, Mary's here with us today. But I'm excited about being able to talk about how we can grow and walk with Jesus as disciples who are growing with Him. So let's pray as we start. Father, this is your place your time, and we are your people. So we come to you with open hearts asking that you would feed us and lift us closer to Jesus and give us a picture of what can be in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. He walked into my office. I'll call him Jim, although I do have his permission to share his story. And I had been meeting with him on almost a weekly basis, at least two or three times a month, for two years. And I had been so frustrated because nothing was happening. Nothing was changing in his life. It was the same old story over and over again. In fact, when I talked to Mary about it, she says, why, why don't you stop wasting your time? It's just not worth it. He's not going to change. But I had made a commitment a number of years ago that if somebody came to me asking me to help walk beside them in their journey with Jesus that I would do that as long as it kept coming. So for two years, no change. And all of a sudden, this day, as he came into my office, Jim was totally a totally different person. The way he walked, the way he, the way he stood, the way he talked was different. He said, I finally get it. I finally get it. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you've been trying to teach me for two years. It's all about letting Jesus come into your life and letting Him change you from the inside out. I thought, well, well, yeah, that's what it's about, but Mike, what has changed? He said, well, I've been studying and I've been praying and, and finally it dawned on me. In fact, it's so real that on the way here I had to stop at a shop to pick up some supplies and, and Jim is a, is a craftsman. He's a contractor and a craftsman. He put 40 coats of lacquer on a high-end grand piano, refinishing it so it would look like you were looking into a well of water when you did it. I mean, he just, that kind of craftsman. In fact, he was getting some supplies for working on that piano when he, when he stopped. And he said, I was there, and the, the young lady at the checkout, the cashier there, said a bad word, and she reached down and snapped a rubber band on her wrist. So when I got up there, I said, well, what's this about snapping your wrist? Well, she says, I, I'm trying to change the way I talk. I, I've been cursing too much. And, and so every time I say a curse word, I snap that rubber band to remind me to not curse. And so he said, how's that working for you? She says, not very well. It hurts. He said, well, let me tell you what I've just discovered. I've just discovered in the last couple of days what will really, really, really change you. And he gave her a Bible study right there at the cashier about how Jesus wants to live in us and transform us from the inside out. 
And I thought, wow. You know, when you get excited about what Jesus is doing in your life, you can't wait for an opportunity to share it with somebody else. And during the next two years, as I walked beside Jim in his journey with God, I saw a transformation take place that was absolutely incredible. But let me back up and tell you how I started my relationship with Jim. One of our church members, who's a friend of Jim's, said, are you willing to work with people who are not necessarily members of the church? Well, what are you talking about? Well, he said, I know a couple who are having troubles in their marriage, and and they need some help, and I think they'd be willing to come. I said, yeah, well, Mary and I will work with them. So we don't do counseling. We don't do marriage counseling. We don't do pre-marriage counseling. What we do is discipling. Marriage discipling, walking beside the couple, trying to explore how God can make a difference in their lives as he works in them. So they came. But there was a problem. You see, Jim and his wife had been married only a couple of years, and they'd been in trouble from the day of their marriage. In fact, they'd been in trouble before their marriage. Jim was on the job at a house, and this young lady visited the lady in the house next door to the house Jim was working on. They met there outside the construction, talked for a little bit, got acquainted, and the next day they were in bed together. And then they got married, and they were struggling. They were coming to church, not at an Adventist church, not in paradise. Um, They were part of the worship team. So they wanted something with God, They were looking for something with God, but everything in their lives was so topsy-turvy. And by the way, that's one of the problems. The chances of a marriage being stable starting like that just aren't there. And they came in. We explained the process, how we walked beside them. And I think Mary and I met with them probably for about three, four months. We would meet one week with the four of us together, and on the alternating week, I would meet with Jim and Mary would meet with her. And finally she said, this isn't working for me. I said, okay. I said, do you want to share with me what's not working? Well, you talk about how God wants to be in charge of every part of our lives and how if we've done something wrong, we have to confess it to him and accept his forgiveness. I don't think what we've done is wrong. So it's not working for me. I said, I've noticed. I said, we're here if you want to, but we're not going to force you to come. She said, no, I think this is last time. I said, okay. The next day, Jim called me. He said, I know my wife doesn't want to come, but there's something there that I want. Can I keep coming? I said, sure. And so we met once a week or sometimes every other week, but three times a week, a month usually. For two years, no growth until that day. During the following two years, by the way, the Marys did not last. I think six weeks after she stopped coming, she moved out and was on her own. Uh, during the next two years, I watched God transform Jim. 
as he opens his life in a daily walk with Jesus. In fact, after two years, he called me and he said, uh, I need to talk to you. I said, well, we're scheduled next week. He said, no, I don't want to wait till next week. I need to talk to you this week. I said, okay. And he began to describe this young lady who lived away in another state that he'd been introduced to, that he was now discipling, sharing with her all the things that he and I had gone through in the previous two years. He said, we're not ready to get married, but we're talking kind of serious And I don't want to make the mistake I did again. By the way, Walt and Tim, when I took them to the Prepare and Enrich assessment for their marriage, it was the most devitalized couple profile I have ever seen in my life. And I told them, I said, if if the two of you had come to me before you got married, I would have said, you need two years with special, intentional, intensive help for healing. If this marriage is going to stay together, it's going to take a miracle. So now he says, I've been meeting with this young lady. I've gone to see her several times, and we talk every day. We have prayer together every morning, and every evening we have a long conversation about God. But I don't want to go any further in this relationship if... There's no hope for it. Could you do the prepare and enrich with us now? And we did. And it was a healthy profile. Incredibly, powerfully healthy profile. It was confirmation to me at that point what God had done to transform Jim over those two years, over those four years of walking together and the last two years when he finally realized what Jesus wanted to do. And so I kept working with him, and he kept working with her. Then he said, we're ready to get married, but we want to take the test one more time to make sure. (laughs) And it was an even healthier profile. And then one weekend they were down in paradise together, and there in the foyer of the church we had a little kind of a family wedding. Some friends of hers, some friends of his, Mary and myself. It was Christmas time. And about once a year, sometimes a little more frequently, I get a call from Jim saying, Hey, I just had to call and thank you. Just want to let you know we're still growing with God and, and, and every day is an exciting journey as we grow with Jesus. And, and I can just tell the love of Jesus and the excitement of the adventure of walking with Jesus through everyday life has transformed everything. You need to understand where Mike came from. I mean Jim. (laughs) I just told you the name. Where Jim came from. Jim came from a long line of very, very conservative religious people. Eastern European descent. At 17 years of age, he saved his brother from being struck over the head with a hoe, which would have probably killed him because his dad got angry with his younger brother and was swinging the hoe to strike his son 
with the blade of the hoe. And Jim stood there and caught the handle. It was an abusive, legalistic, unforgiving environment that he grew up in. But when he found grace, and I love your website, I mean your email, grace is the point. When Jim found grace and started walking with Jesus in his everyday life, everything changed. And in John chapter 2, we find the, two, the story of two disciples, followers of John the Baptist, who are there, standing there on their side when Jesus has walked by. It's actually John chapter 1, I'm sorry. Verse 35. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, the day before, he had said that again, back in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these two disciples, Andrew and John, Now, we don't find John's name here because John never mentions himself in his gospel. But he's mentioned as the disciple who loved Jesus or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here it says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, that seems kind of like an invasive question. Well, where are you staying? Are you guys stalkers? Or, or what, what's happening here? But Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew they were seeking something more than what they were getting with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had changed their lives radically, but John himself was pretty radical. And it wasn't satisfying the desire of their hearts. So when he talks about the Lamb of God who will save the world from their sins, they're wanting more. So he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So what did he do? Remember Jim? When he finally gets it, he can't wait to tell somebody else, even if it's a cashier snapping her wrist with a rubber band. Andrew goes home to his brother, Peter. We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. I don't know what Peter said to him, but I can imagine the conversation. What are you talking about? We've been talking about the Messiah in in our culture for centuries. And you're saying he's here now? Come and see. Let me show him to you. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And by the way, the same thing happens with 
John and his brother. Back in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, I kind of think that what John tells is the story of the initial encounter. But what Matthew and Mark describe is when Jesus reaches out to them specifically and says, I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to come and follow me. Because we find the story here. Starting Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then down, verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And notice both verse 20 and verse 22. says, immediately they left their nets, or the boat, and followed him. Whether it's Jim in the middle of the routine of his day, who finally gets it, whether it's Peter and Andrew, James and John, God comes to each one of us. In the, in the business of everyday life, on those days when it seems like we don't have enough time to get everything done that's on our agenda, on those days when the burden seems too big to carry, when the pain of, of, of this world Thursday, Mary comes into the house and says, Ben, you, you, you got to get your shoes on. Come, we've got to go to the hospital. And she tells me that one of our friends is in the hospital with a massive heart attack. And they were asking for us. When we finish this afternoon, we're going to go visit him at Sutter, where yesterday he had multiple repair sites on his heart the word we have is that he's doing well this is a friend who's still not baptized as a member of our church but he's been coming to the paradise church for almost eight years started out his wife was coming and then he would come, he was a Costco meat cutter, okay? In fact, he was one of their top meat cutters. He'd go, he, he was sent around the West to Costco to train the meat cutters. And, of course, Saturday was his big day. So his wife would start to come to church regularly, and if we had a concert or something, he would come. And then his wife died with cancer. And I'm tired of that word. And then he retired. And he started coming to church regularly. And then he started seeing a 
a friend who had been a friend of his wife's, who his wife had said, you need to marry her after I'm gone. <laughs> I don't know what, what women are thinking. <laughs> but it worked. And in that process, he said, if you aren't interested in church, then we'll be friends. But this is my church, and it's an important part in my life. And if you want to be part of my life, you've got to be part of this church. And they've been coming more regularly than most members. Okay? And I'm tired of this kind of pain. I'm tired of hearing that a friend has died with metastases of cancer. And it seems like it's happening more often. But I'm even more tired of a Christianity that has no power. A Christianity that in this nation that claims to have Christian roots, that though it no longer can call itself a Christian nation in reality, there is virtually no difference between the lives of the Christians and the lives of the non-Christians in our culture. And I'm tired of that. I'm tired of church members who want to pretend and play the Christian game and become professional critics because they want everybody to be better than they are. And the legalistic accusations pervade our church on every level. And I'm tempted to say what Eli's daughter-in-law said when he lay dead on the ground after the ark had been brought back and he'd heard the news I mean after the ark had been captured and he heard the news that his two sons were dead and his wife is pregnant and the trauma of what has come brings on the birth and she's asked the question what do I call him and she says call him Ichabod The glory has departed. I'm afraid that that name describes far too many Christians in today's world, far too many Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know your church very well, but I've watched this church from a distance, and it excites me. It started as a church plant just a few years ago, and, and I don't know, Walt, how how fortunate you realize you are to have come in early in this history and be part of developing a church that focuses around grace and helping people know and walk with Jesus. And I hope you're taking advantage of what this church is offering because Christianity is not a lifestyle of trying to imitate Jesus. Christianity is not a lifestyle of following the rules and trying to live like Jesus did. Even though you have up there, live like Jesus. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a powerful, transforming, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about rules. There may be guidelines to help you have a better, healthier life. To help you have a better walk with Jesus. But you can follow all those rules. And if you don't know Jesus, it's useless. 
You see, the disciples knew all the rules. And I suspect that they had given up on most of them. Jesus didn't go to the rulers who knew the rules. He went to the average person who was hungry to know and walk with God. Little did those 12 understand, and later on only 11 would discover, little did those first 12 disciples understand the adventure that he was calling them to. A few years ago, I had the privilege of meeting and coming to know Pastor Tomasian. He was the president of the Southern Asia Division, the first native-born, Indian-born president of our church division there. And he could trace his ancestry back to the Thomasine Christians who were converted by Thomas, who ended his life in India. Thomas, I've been to the place where he, where he lived and where he preached. I've been to the place where, where he was killed. Little did Thomas, doubting Thomas, know what would happen in his life and how far he would go to tell the story of the Jesus he had come to love. They weren't talking about all the different doctrines. They were telling the story of a God who loves us so much that he came and became one of us. And John, overwhelmed by that concept, First John, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first chapter of John, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to explain that everything was created through that Word. And he's using language that fits the culture of the day. And then verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh, and tabernacled among us. That's the word that's used there. Pitched his tent with us. It's caravan language. When people traveled through the Middle East in in those days, they could not travel alone. The risks, the dangers of being attacked, the dangers of running out of water or a severe storm, dust storm, sandstorm that could kill you, they were so great that they would gather in a caravan and they would agree. They would pitch their tents together. They would tabernacle together they would agree that they would be a a group of mutual support team that would go through life on on that journey to wherever they were going together for mutual protection and strength. That's the word John uses when he says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled among us, became one of us. Max Lucado describes it this way. Jesus moved into our neighborhood. That's the Jesus that changes our lives. And when we begin to walk with Him through every part of our lives, as we open our lives to His presence, for He has promised to be with us always, 
we begin to discover the adventure that he promised in John 10.10 when he said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Far too many of us are satisfied with just a little bit of God. Just enough to make us think about Him from time to time, but not enough to make us uncomfortable with our lifestyles. Just enough to say we are following Him, but not enough to so that it would turn our lives upside down. Enough to say that He is Jesus, our Savior, and that we believe we have eternal life, but not enough to allow Him complete control of everything we are and everything that we have. See, Jesus calls us where we are. But thank God He doesn't leave us there. He comes and joins our journey and then invites us to join His journey and to walk with Him. And as His journey takes us through every day of our lives, we discover that He is greater and more powerful and more wonderful than we could ever imagine or explain to anybody else unless they've experienced it. As I've looked at followers of Jesus down through time, followers of God in the Old Testament, I found six descriptions of what God followers are like. The first one is they are passionately in love with God. They realize God has loved us so much that when they experience that love, love for Him is awakened in their hearts. The second description, and we'll explore these more this afternoon. The second description is disciples always have intimate, personal time with God on a daily basis. may start out with just five, ten minutes. It may never get beyond 15 or 30 minutes a day for some people. But for others, a friend of mine said, when I got into this, he said it would only take 40, 45 minutes a day. He said, I'm spending three hours a day with God. You're tearing my life up. I said, well, I didn't tell you to do that. He said, no, but I'm so in love with what God is doing in my life. I want more time with Him. Daily time in His Word, talking to Him, practicing His presence in your life. The third description is disciples maintain a second level of intimacy of integrating God into every area of their lives. As in a marriage, you have two intimacies. The physical intimacy of the bedroom, which is precious and and powerful and a special gift of God, but also the intimacy of growing through life together, sharing life together. Kneeling beside the bed of that child that has has spiked a fever and you can't get that fever down and you don't know what to do and you kneel there and you pray together. walking together and praying for teenagers, hoping that God will somehow someday realize, help them realize that He's real and that He has something to offer to them. We need both of those intimacies, integrating God into everyday life, as well as the, the private time with Him alone. The fourth description of a disciple is 
Disciple integrates God into every area of life and makes him a priority in every decision. Are you hearing me? I'm not talking about those big heart-wrenching decisions where you, out of, you don't know where to go and out of desperation you turn and say, God, help me. I'm talking about what kind of car you're going to drive. How are you going to dress? What are you going to do in your recreational time? How are you going to parent your children? In every decision, you allow God to be the priority who helps guide every decision you make. That's what happens with true God followers. The fifth description is they're always part of what today we call a church family. That new building isn't the church. You are the church. We are the church. The organizational structure of this denomination is not the church. The conference, the union, the division, the general conference, they are not the church. Now those people who work there are part of the church because they are members of a local church. But God followers always have a family that they, they belong to and they grow together. We need each other. We need an environment where when we are hurting, somebody can help us. When somebody else is hurting, we can help them. We need a community where together we come together to worship God, to grow together, to study together, to praise Him, and to empower us to go out and do the fifth, the sixth description of true followers of Christ, disciples. Share with those around us what great things Jesus has done for us. We've got to tell you about Joe first time I met him was in the county jail. He's associated with our church family. Not one of our members. 27 years old. Related to one of our members. Long-term drug addict. Hard drugs. You name it, he'd used them. Been a hard drug addict for 10 years. Been through three different long-term in-residence rehab programs. None of them worked. And he ran out of drugs and he ran out of money, so he lured the drug dealer to his apartment, beat him to death with a hammer, stole his drugs, stole his money, came down to... Oh, wrapped the body up in a tarp and carried it up into the mountains above Paradise off of Kootenink Road, one of the back roads out there, and dropped the body out there. Came down to Sacramento to do drugs with his druggy friends. Everything went well until he ran out of money again. So he stole some things from his drug friends, pawned them to have more money. Now, druggy friends are friends as long as everybody has drugs. But when you steal from them, they're no longer your friends. So they're out to get him, and they are going to kill him. So what does he do? He runs for safety to the police station. They run his name and discover he has a long-term record as a multiple drug offender and that he is the primary suspect in the murder of this man up in Paradise. So he gets shipped up to Butte County and he's in the Butte County Jail. And his family calls and tells me and says, could you visit him? 
what am I going to say to a man I've never met who's in jail facing capital murder charges, possible death sentence. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. What do I say to him? So I made the arrangements. Butte County has a little bit of arrangements. You have to go through and set up an appointment. So I found myself sitting with a phone to my ear, looking at him through a thick glass. I said, Joe, how are you? He said, I'm scared to death. I'm all alone. I'm in my cell 23 hours a day. The only voices I hear are the guards when they bring a meal to me or when they take me outside to walk, do my one hour of exercise outside, but I'm still all by myself out in the yard. I have an old Bible with a lot of pages missing. That's the only thing I have in the cell with me. You know why there are a lot of pages missing? Bible pages make great cigarette paper. He said, I'm scared to death. What do I tell him? And suddenly I realized, as I never had before, how sinful I am. And I said to him, Joe, I want you to know that your sin is no worse than my sin. And just as I have found forgiveness, God offers you forgiveness and you can find it in Jesus. He said, how can you say that, Pastor? I killed a man. I left a woman without a husband. I left children without a father. How can you say that your sin is as bad as mine? I said, because it is. The consequences may be different, but sin, any sin, little or big, separates us from God. And just as I have found forgiveness for my sin, God wants to offer you forgiveness. And over the next 30, 35 minutes, I had the joy of telling him the story of this incredible God, this incredible man called Jesus. And I saw that that man who was scared to death and tense leave that phone when we hung up at peace and relaxed. Made a plea bargain. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. But his mind and his heart are free in Jesus Christ. And when he shifted from one prison to another, as they do to change the inhabitants of those places of, so I say refuge, but I'm not sure they're much refuge doesn't take very long, but Joe now has a group of men gathered around that he's doing Bible studies with wherever he goes. No solo Christian. Wherever he goes, a small church develops. Doesn't look like this. Certainly it doesn't look like that building out there. What would happen if you had to have bars on all the windows to keep everybody here during the worship hour? <laughs> And he's a trusted clerk in the prison system. You see, it doesn't matter where you are. Jesus wants to come into your life and invite you to walk with him and and 
transform your life in one of the greatest adventures. For those 11 disciples, they would cover the world. And the 120 believers who were in the upper room, including those 11 disciples, would turn the world upside down. Why? That's what Jesus does. Loving Father, remind us of what you're calling us to, not what we've known as a religion, but to a powerful, profound, life-transforming relationship with you that turns us into instruments in your hands to touch and transform other people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen.